It's week one of 2018, and we already have our big vulnerability of the year with Meltdown Inspector. And Don and I will break that down, as well as some other news from this week, all coming up on the IT Pro TV podcast, starting right now. Hello and welcome to the IT Pro TV podcast. I'm your host, Peter Van Rysdam, and I am joined, as always, by Mr. Don Pizet. Don, how you doing? I am doing great. Ready to kick off, well, 2018 to 2018. How do we say it? Yeah, 2018. 2018 right. yeah. So, uh, you know, an all-new year for us, which means I'm going to get the year wrong for at least a month and a half. It's funny. Uh, I was thinking you used to write it on checks wrong. You don't write <laughs> checks anymore, so I don't know where I'm going to get it wrong, but I know I will. I'm lucky to remember but, the month. Yeah, and it... Uh, <laughs> It is starting off as a cold one. We're here in Don's office where, luckily, it's a balmy 97 degrees. But uh, outside in Florida, of all places, it's been in the 20s uh, these last couple of mornings. And uh, we don't know how to handle that. So kids are out of school. You've got uh, all the salt we have goes for margaritas yeah. where it would go to yeah. roads. Uh, we don't know how to do that. So it's schools are closed because it's cold. There's not an inch of snow on the ground, but it's cold. And, uh, you know, cabin fever is a just a, a major epidemic for us that uh, we, Floridians don't do well with the cold. Now, going to be tons of September babies. Um, <laughs> so speaking of which, let's go ahead and jump in, into the news for this week. And there's something that's uh, dominating the news pretty heavily, heavily um, and it is uh, an issue with uh, with processors, with chips and um I don't. I don't want to say too much about it because I don't know all the details about it because it's kind of something that's unfolded uh, as we've gone. Like, oh, it was an Intel thing, and now it looks like it stretches beyond that. And it was a, a Windows thing or a Linux thing. Now it's uh, it's it's basically every computer ever made. It looks like so. Um, Don, maybe you can help us out here with um, just kind of an overview. This is Meltdown Inspector uh, are the the names that have been given to this. So. What is it? What do we got to be worried about here? All right, so this this is a challenging one, and, and and that's one of the reasons why it's so prevalent in the news. And the headlines are all over the place. Some of them are, are very accurate. Some of them are super sensationalized. Some of them may look sensationalized, but actually do have some merit to them because this is a very, very widespread bug. The, the most common way that we're seeing it put out there is that, uh, that there is a vulnerability in Intel CPUs that could lead to leaked information, a, a compromise of your data. Um, the more sensationalist side of this stuff is uh, none of your data is safe, your computer is vulnerable. Uh, and, you know, th things of that, that nature that are, are really just kind of gloom and doom, turn your computer off, that kind of thing. Um, but it's not totally irresponsible this time because it is actually a very, very widespread uh, vulnerability. Uh, and it is actually two different vulnerabilities that by themselves aren't terribly powerful, but when you put them together, really create a, a bit of a problem. Um, now, the two exploits are called Meltdown and Spectre. And each one does something a little bit different, but they, when used in conjunction, can actually lead to leaking data out of your system. And this is actually tied to a hardware problem, a problem in the design architecture of Intel CPUs. And that's really what makes this sensational because if there's a bug in software, what do we do? push out a software patch, right? Uh, Apple had that really bad uh, root vulnerability a few weeks ago. They just pushed out an update. It's not the end of the world. But when it's a problem with hardware, you've got two choices. Oh, I guess maybe three, right? If the, the hardware is flash updatable, then maybe you can flash update the hardware. CPUs traditionally aren't flash updatable because 
they're the heart of your computer. You're always using it. That means it's, it's not something that can be updated in, in its own uh, form. So after that, you've got really two remaining choices, which is one, replace the hardware, do a recall and, and replace with fixed hardware, or two, to patch it somehow in software so that the hardware bug is still there, but it goes away because you don't see it in software. The problem is it has to be patched in all these different applications and operating systems, and so it's pretty widespread. The last time we had something happen like this was back in the 1990s in the original Intel Pentium when they had a mathematics, uh, an, uh, a, uh, uh, it was a logic bug that caused it to, to do some bad math occasionally. And bad math is a really big problem. And anybody who had those original Intel Pentiums suffered from that bug. And so pretty much all programs that were released for the next several years had to have this little fix in them that said, detect the processor. If it's a Pentium, watch out for this floating point bug and, and then solve it. That was a big deal. But back then it was just Eh, you know, it's, it's going to cause my computer to lock up or I might get a bad result from a, uh, a multiplication problem or something like that. The one today is different. It, it is a hardware problem, very similar to what we had back in the 90s. But the difference here is that it can actually cause sensitive information to be leaked from your computer. And that's why it's all over the news. And while they're saying mostly that it affects Intel CPUs, Spectre actually affects more than just Intel CPU. It, it's shown to work on AMD as well as ARM processors. And it's not yet proven that Meltdown can't work on uh, AMD processors yet. They're still kind of testing and exploring. Intel was the focus of the initial uh, exploration. So how is this something that's that's just coming about? Because I, from what I've read, this, this affects computers going really far back into the 90s of, of when your hardware was built, if it has this chip forward. Um, you're susceptible. So is this an issue where someone just discovered this vulnerability or uh, has someone actually been hacked by this and that's how we found out about it? Well, you know, this is another one of those cases where uh, it was actually a researcher that found it. And, and it's actually kind of a neat story because it's, it's like six different researchers that found it. Uh, three different teams, some that were just a single person. Like uh, Google has Project Zero, where they, they dump a ton of money into this group to be able to research and find exploits like this. And one of their people, Jan, I can never remember her last name, um, but, uh, but, but one of their people... Uh, basically found this independently on their own. And then there were other people that did it as well, uh, other teams that were kind of researching simultaneously. So you had three different groups that all found this at the same time, and all three were security researchers. Now, that doesn't mean that malicious actors out there hadn't discovered it already, and we just didn't know about it yet. Yeah, because they're not going to tell us <laughs> right. when they find these vulnerabilities. They're going to use them until something like this comes out. And because it's a hardware attack, there's no log file. There's no way to see if it's been used. So this, this could have been used widespread for years, and we wouldn't even know it, right? That, that's the, the scary part. But realistically, this was a really hard one to figure out. The security researchers found it, and they found it well over a month ago. And they did what's called responsible disclosure, right? So instead of just going straight to the press and saying, hey, here's this vulnerability. We found it. Where's my five minutes of fame? They go to the vendors. And so they went to Intel, and they went to AMD, they went to Microsoft and Apple and Google, and they disclosed this information. And they said, here's the vulnerability we've found, and we think you need to, to patch it. And so each vendor was working on it. And there's a little bit of controversy here because uh, they usually will give either a couple of weeks or a month. It just kind of depends. Uh, but on this one, they had said basically they had a month. We'll give you a month. You need to patch it, and then we'll, we'll release the information if you haven't patched it. 
And so the vendors were all working on it. The vendors were actually scheduled to release information next week. So this should be a breaking story next week. But it's a breaking story right now because as each vendor was patching all of this uh, with like Linux, Linux is an open source operating system. And so each of these patches were being approved and there was no vulnerability tied to the patch. And people started asking questions like, why are we changing this if there's no vulnerability that it's fixing? And uh, I believe it was the register, uh, it's a, you know, a news website. Uh, they kind of put the pieces together and figured out what the vulnerability was, and they announced it uh, just a couple of days ago. And, or actually, was it just yesterday? It's a it very, very recent. It's hard for us in the U.S. where we, we just had New Year's and most people were on holiday, and then this uh, this gets released. So they announced it earlier than the vendors were ready, and as a result. Uh, the register got a little bit of fame, right? They got their five minutes of fame. But now you have a situation where Apple already pushed out a patch. AWS has a patch in place. Azure has a patch. A couple others have a patch in place. Microsoft doesn't have their patch in place because since it wasn't disclosed, Microsoft said, we'll roll this out as part of our normal updates, and it's scheduled to come out next week as part Mm -hmm. of their normal patch Tuesday. Well, it's not patch Tuesday anymore, but their normal release cycle. But now they got kind of caught uh, because of this early disclosure. So some people are praising the register. I, I was kind of frustrated. Like, that that really didn't do anybody any good, but it got them a little bit of fame. Yeah, that's uh, something that could come back and bite them. I, I, not a big fan of that, but, uh, it, you know, if, if it was an issue of um, they've gone through that time period and Microsoft hadn't gotten their fix ready, but it sounds like they did, and, and uh, it just kind of jumped the gun with releasing it. So, so what I understand now, there are patches for all of them, or is there, the Windows one is still not released at, at this point? The Windows one is, is still not released to the general public, okay. right? So it, Microsoft does a, uh, they do an insider program, and actually for a, a, a fix like this, uh, it would be considered a security hot fix or a critical update. Uh, they push those to a, a test ring early before then pushing out to the, the whole world. So it, it's not released to the world. But much like the bug back in the 90s, it can be patched in a number of different places. So if you're worried about this and your operating system is, is not covered, right? If Let's talk a little bit about how to, to protect yourself, right? So if you're on a Mac, do, do your update, right? Mac OS 10.13.2 is patched for this particular exploit, and, and it'll, it'll fix it and take and, care of it. And basically to clarify, if you're on a Mac, a, a, a MacBook or a Mac that runs... It's probably has the chip that, that's affected by. Oh this. yeah, yeah. All yeah. all MacBooks, all iMacs, all Mac Pros have Intel CPUs in them, right? Apple yeah. does not use AMDs for any of those. Uh, if you have an iPad or an iPhone, that's a different story. But uh, uh, but if you've got anything running Mac OS, absolutely, it's it's susceptible to this. Uh, with Linux, uh, the, most Linux distros have already pushed out an update. Not all of them, but most of them have. And so that update is going out. You just need to do it. With Microsoft, you can just wait till next week, and you take the update there. Or a lot of software vendors have already started patching their software for it as well. And the most important one, in my opinion, is your web browser. That your web browser really needs to be updated. Uh, there is a fix for Google Chrome already out. Firefox, I believe, is out already. If not, it'll be out later this afternoon. Um, and the reason I say your web browser is... If somebody has physical access to your computer, they could exploit this. 
But if they don't have physical access, they've got to be able to get into your system somehow. And the web browser is the most likely vehicle to allow them to, to get in and compromise your system and to be able to exfiltrate the data out of your system. So if you patch your web browser, that'll at least get you by fairly safe to make sure that it's not going to be taken advantage of. Now, there's no real-world demonstrations of somebody exploiting this. So it's not an exploit yet. It's still in the vulnerability stage. Uh, but it's just a matter of time. I think all the patches will be out in time for us to be protected on that. So what is the difference here with, with Meltdown Inspector? You talked about that they're, they're different things, but, but they mm -hmm. relate. Is it like one opens the door and one helps you get the stuff out, or, or basically? Yeah, sort of. Um, so let's talk about each one. And, and I, I don't want to be like a – I don't want all of our listeners to have to have a computer engineering degree to understand what the heck's yeah. going on. Um, so to, to boil it down as simple as we can, um, most processors these days – in fact, I'd venture to say all processors these days – are either multi-core or do what's called hyper-threading. And in the, in the olden days, you had a single CPU. And a single CPU could only do one task at a time. You'd give it a task, it would do it, then you'd give it the next task. That's how they worked, right? Uh, very, very simple. But modern processors do more than one thing at a time. You've got dual-core, quad-core, uh, octa-core processors. I know they've got 12 and even 16-core CPUs. You might have more than one physical CPU in your system all to allow you to do more than one task at a time. And in order for your operating system to take advantage of that, it has to take the tasks that you're doing and break them up into the smallest pieces possible. The, the smaller piece they can create, the more things they can run at the same time. So I might be asking you something very simple. What's one plus one? Well, the processor is going to look at that and say, I can't really break that up in anything smaller, so let me just run that through, and it's a single operation. But if I'm asking for it to show me a picture on my computer, it could actually break up the rendering of, of each uh, of those where it converts like a code to a color. It can break that up and spread it across the cores and, and actually get that done in a, a parallel fashion instead of a serial fashion to just get it up on the screen really, really quick, right? That's the whole advantage of these fast processors. Well, that's the part that Meltdown is exploiting. Now, remember uh, Peter said that this affected processes that go back a long time, right? They said definitely anything made after 2010, but really it could go back as far as 1995. And it, it basically comes down to that multiprocessor, that since 2010, pretty much every CPU has had more than one core. And going all the way back to 1995, you had systems that might have more than one physical CPU in them. And when your system is running, your operating system is running, it's sending these instructions to the CPU, and the CPU is breaking these up into pieces. And as it does that, it's trying to get them to run as many operations at one time as possible. And so it may take those operations and run them out of order. It may say, all right, I've got this image, but I'm not going to start at coordinate 0, 1, and then 0, 2, 0, 3, and so on. It might go out of order just to get things done faster. And when it does that, it has to cache some of the information. And a lot of processors will do what's called speculative execution. They'll see you're doing a pattern of activity, and they'll try and guess what you're about to do so it can do it ahead of time. It'll do that calculation ahead of time, and that way when you call for the calculation, it already knows the answer. Well, when it works, you get the answer really fast. It's already done, right? But sometimes it guesses wrong. It says, I think you're about to do this. Oh, nope, you did something different. And when that happens, it deletes the result that it got, but the operation itself is still held in cache. And that cache is kind of the, the core of the, the meltdown problem. 
that when we run applications on our systems, there's two different types of applications that are run. There's what's called kernel space applications and user space applications. So user space, that's what we see, right? If you run a web browser, if you run your file explorer or a FTP client or whatever, that's all user applications. You run those. Those applications are controlled by the operating system. And the operating system runs its things in kernel space that has full access to the hardware, can do whatever it wants. Kernel space is dangerous. So users aren't normally allowed access to it. Well, with Meltdown, what they can do is they can watch the CPU and see when kernel space is doing something, the system guesses wrong, and then that data gets cached, it gets deleted, and now we can explore the cache because it's not treated as kernel space anymore. And the same thing happens for user applications if you have multiple users running, that you can look at that cache and be able to extract that information. So Meltdown is a bug that lets them see this cached and deleted info, right? Well, that right there in and of itself isn't terribly useful because what data got deleted? It's random. It, you know, it's random. It's whenever the computer guesses wrong that that data is there and it reaches out and it grabs it. So if, if you could just collect random data like that, that's not going to help you really at all. And that's what Meltdown does. It gives you this access to something that you shouldn't normally have access to. A user should never have access to kernel space. Here's a chance where they can see it. Now, they can't necessarily change it. They can't remote execute uh, kernel space code. So it's not like that, but they can see it. So in kernel space, maybe your hard drive is encrypted and there's an encryption key on your hard drive and the system thinks you're about to read from a location on the disk and so it's got that key cached and ready to go. And then you don't read from the disk and so it deletes it and that key is still in cache. We read it, now we've got your encryption key, right? That, that's the kind of problem, that's the, the way this vulnerability works. But it is random, all right? So that, that's one part. And it doesn't sound so bad when you put it that way. You know, obviously, you just can kind of get an idea of how this critical information could be accessed, but it's pretty hard to do. And it sounds like parsing through the data as the as the hacker and, and finding that one you know gem in there, it would be pretty difficult. Right, yeah, yeah. And, and probably detectable yeah. because you'd have to consume CPU cycles to be able to collect that data, and, and we'd probably see that. So that's where Spectre comes in. Now, Spectre is not just Intel. Spectre's been shown to work on AMD and ARM. This one works across the board, which means it affects mobile phones, it affects tablets, it affects computers. Uh, it, it's across the board. And with it, uh, what it does is it allows somebody in user space to basically be tricked, to be tricked into creating a sequence of actions that make the processor speculate on what you're about to do. And then it'll speculate, and the program will stop short of actually doing it, so the data gets deleted, and it's in cache, right? Spectre allows us to basically force something to go into this cache that Meltdown allows us to read, right? So with Spectre, now we can actually direct it, and it's not random anymore, right? So somebody could write a worm, uh, you know, some kind of a, a Trojan horse, right? And I could go and download an application that has this Trojan in it. I install the application. And now while the application is running, it might look normal to me. But in the background, it's performing a series of actions that trick the CPU into you know, doing kernel space activities or user space activities. It could say, hey, I'm about to read from this disk, or it could read 100 sectors of the disk in a row, knowing that it's not going to read the 101st, 
But if it stops at 100, it'll know the 101st is going to be cached. And so now it can look to get that encryption key or, or whatever. So Spectre allows them to take the random meltdown exploit or vulnerability and now direct it at a particular set of information. You can seek out exactly what you want, and you can do it with very little effort. It doesn't take a whole lot of CPU cycles or anything, which makes it very, very difficult to, to detect because this is normal operation for the CPU. It's just doing its normal routines, and we just happen to be reading more than we'd normally have access to. So I don't know if I should be proud of myself or impressed by you, but I actually understand that. Um, <laughs> the, the one question I have, uh, though, from that is you described kind of how this was discovered and, and it was, you know, security analysts going in and, and just kind of looking at things and, and discovering these things that exist. So this isn't code that was written by a hacker to do this. This is just a mistake in something that, that was, uh, you know, put on the, on, on the chip itself yeah, and, yeah. and just noticed and noticed, hey, if I use this, and I use this other mistake I know about, because it sounds like Spectre wouldn't do much of anything if Meltdown didn't exist. But melt, having Meltdown exist gives Spectre something to basically go and, and be able to exploit. Right. Yeah. In the security community, there, there's some terminology for this, right? Uh, you'll hear people say vulnerability, and you'll hear people say exploit. And, and those are two different terms, right? A vulnerability means something has a weakness, that could potentially be taken advantage of, right? It doesn't necessarily mean there's a way to take advantage of it, but there's the potential to do that, right? Uh, and somebody might create a POC, a proof of concept. And so they have this, this idea of here's how this could be used, right? But until it's seen in the wild, until somebody's actually found a way to take advantage of it, it's not considered an exploit. Right? So the exploit's the worm that you described. If someone goes and writes that that code that that does these things then that's that's an exploit in that case well it, the the worm would actually be using the exploit I see. Okay. so the, the the exploit would be the activity you use and the, the worm would perform that activity so it's uh it's more of the carrier right okay so uh and, and these are just words right mm -hmm. terminology but it, it does help you kind of understand where these people are coming from so in this case the security researchers they found meltdown they found specter and then they did a proof of concept that showed how they could use specter to uh, basically exploit Meltdown to get specific information out of it. So technically, Meltdown is an exploit at this point, or is exploitable, right? Uh, and then Spectre is a way to, to weaponize that. If you put the two together, now you actually have an exploit that can be used on a system, but individually, they're just vulnerabilities. They can't really do a whole heck of a lot by themselves. They've got to work together to do it. And now that it's public information, attackers can start to craft software to take advantage of this. And the challenge here is that it has to be software run from your system, and that makes it a little more challenging for an attacker to use, so they're going to have to compromise you some other way. So there's going to be yet another attack or you know exploit that's attached to this to just infect your machine in the first place so they can then go on to, to actually leverage this. And that's not to say that someone needs physical access to the machine, but you're saying another way, and that's why you talked about the browser. Yeah. So if I, if I created a phishing scam or, or something like that, that's how I'm going to get onto your system and then be able to, to basically implant that worm. Right, and unfortunately that step is all too easy these yeah. days, right? <laughs> so you know, it, it means there's just too easy a way to get that stuff on your system. So this type of vulnerability now goes from being, oh, this crazy technical thing that would be hard to use to, oh, man, this is actually a big deal. Right? This is a, a really big problem, and I need, to, I need to get that taken care of on my system as soon as I can. Yeah, yeah I mean, just in the time we've been talking, I've, I've downloaded about two or three viruses, <laughs> I think. Um, so, 
that's definitely something that could be an issue. Um, so if I'm an individual, obviously I need to go and I need to uh, install the updates that are available um, from my uh, uh, OS provider. Um, so Mac, Linux, um, Windows coming soon. Uh, if I am a, a system admin at, at a company, I need to make sure that all my employees are doing that and that I've gone and done that on the, the systems that I manage in the, in the server room. But if I think, well, I, my stuff's all in the cloud, I'm, I'm home free. <laughs> That's, I mean, those are still computers that are, exist somewhere else or in multiple locations that need to be patched. I know you said that, uh, these, uh, that, that the operating systems will release these things in different waves. Are, yeah, are yeah they absolutely. Hopefully people that have gotten these, uh, these fixes already. Well, you know, cloud gives us two challenges here, right? So one, um, you don't necessarily know what the underlying operating system is. It's completely hidden from you, yeah. right? So you don't have control over that. Is it patched or isn't it? You're going to have to find out from your cloud provider whether they've done that. But the other thing is cloud exposes us to a completely different risk. If I want to use this exploit against you, Peter, I've got to get access to this laptop right here, right? That's where your information is. I've got to somehow compromise that. But I could go and log into AWS or Azure or, or one of the other cloud platforms, Google Compute Engine, and I could spin up my own virtual machine. And in my virtual machine, I could put the exploit in there myself. I could say, all right, I'm going to run, uh, I'm going to run a you know a software application that I've written that uses Spectre that forces the speculative execution and then read the the cache via Meltdown to see what's going on. Well, when my virtual machine runs those executions. Uh, those operations, they're going to be run against the CPU, the physical CPU. Well, cloud providers, they share CPUs amongst customers, right? So when I start looking at that CPU, it's not only my data in that execution cache, it's the other cloud customers as well. And so now I could be poking around on cache data for people who I don't even know who they are. I don't know what network they're on. I don't know what language they speak. I don't know what operating system they're running. And I don't need to know because I'm just looking straight at the cache inside of that CPU. That is a huge, huge risk. Now, let's put a little scope on this. Um, first off, if it is a virtualization platform that uses true virtualization, true hardware-based virtualization, uh, I'm talking about like VMware ESX, where the virtual machines are being isolated because of extensions in the CPU, this is not a problem. Each one is actually given a virtual CPU, and yes, they could exploit their own area of the CPU, but they couldn't escape to get at the other virtual machine's information, so you're safe. But the problem is several cloud providers, Amazon in particular, uh, they use the Zen hypervisor, and with Zen, you can run what's called a para-virtualized virtual machine, you get a, a whole lot of acronyms can be jammed into this one. Uh, but with para-virtualization, not everything is true hardware virtualization. Some of it is, some of it isn't. And in fact, the CPU typically isn't with Zen. And in that scenario, an attacker could use this exploit or vulnerability against their own VM and see other customers' VM information in process. So that would be really, really bad. And so cloud is not safe. You need to verify with your vendor that they fixed it. The big ones have already fixed it. Uh, Amazon did an announcement they're taking care of. Uh, although their announcement was worded really weird. It said that most systems are taken care of. Well, what the heck does most mean? 
Is that 99%? Is that the one that my stuff's on? Is, yeah. yeah. Is it 51%? Because, yeah. you know, that's that, most. That, yeah. Yeah. Is it, maybe it's a plurality like the presidency, you know, so it's 48%, <laughs> or, yeah. you know, most. In the, in the electoral college. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so I, I don't know what that means, yeah. and that, that worries me. Um, but definitely check if you're using a big provider, you'll likely be taken care of as far as the underlying OS, yeah. right? But you still need to patch your own, right? Uh, and you know, let's say I've got uh, Red Hat Enterprise Linux for my, my virtual machines, right? Well, just because Red Hat has released a patch doesn't mean my cloud machines have been updated. I need to go and update them to make sure I've applied the patch. So that's the other side. So cloud is not an immunity card from this one. If anything else, it's actually a higher vulnerability. So you really need to jump in there and, and get those cloud systems patched. I know you're a Ghostbusters fan, but the para of virtualization make, just makes me think of something that <laughs> you know Egon would say. But um, you so, know, you, you say you, you mentioned like Ghostbusters. Did did you know? Did you go to the official Meltdown Attack webpage? I did not. All right. So for any of you guys out there in TV land, if you want to learn more about this, the the researchers all got together. Um, so they they started the research months ago, and then they slowly discovered each other and realized that multiple teams were working. Yeah. Hey, at the there's same someone time. else hacking this same machine. Yeah. yeah. So uh, the three different groups all paired up about a month ago, and they created a website. It's called MeltdownAttack.com. You can go there. Uh, I've got it pulled up here on my laptop. And, uh, uh, and the webpage, it gives you a little bit of background. It's not terribly technical, but when you get down to the bottom, they have links out to the technical documentation. So you can actually read how this works, and they have a proof of concept. Um, but they were very <laughs> thorough and even made logos for the exploit. This is the official Meltdown logo and the official Spectre logo. It's a ghost that apparently pokes you with a stick. Yeah, why not? Um, so, and, and they give the explanation of why they came up with these things. Um, but they've got papers on, on how it worked, and, and they do get technical when you start to dive into there. Uh, but here they're showing, you know, who, who found Meltdown? Here's the three teams, and uh, uh, you got uh, John Horn, uh, Werner Haas, and, and so on. These, these people, uh, three different teams. And then Spectre, you'll see a lot of overlap, like Google's Project Zero. Uh, but a lot of this was done separately, that Spectre was one thing, Meltdown was another. And when you put the two together, it was like Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, right? Uh, peanut butter and chocolate. Yeah. That's a winning situation. That's uh, what you saw here. So... Really interesting stuff. Most of this did come out of the universities, though. You, you'll see you know, these are, are Ph.D. students, people who are uh, security experts or professors that uh, they research this stuff for a living. Uh, I think, I don't know how to say this, Siberus Technology uh, is a, a security research firm, so uh, private sector. But these are the people that found it. It wasn't, hey, there's this new exploit is being pushed on Tor or whatever. The, it's, yeah. it's something that was actually found. Uh, but if you continue to read, they give you the background on it, as well as a lot of links to papers, and then they show their proof of concept where they're dumping their kernel cache or their uh, uh, kernel space cache, and in the dump, you can see over here where they can actually see the URLs that are being browsed to or packets that are being updated. That information is being pulled right from the cache, which is not encrypted and not protected because it, it's in the CPU, right? They, there's no way to get that data. That's what makes this so so crazy. Um, and in fact, the, the fix for this is not elegant at all. Uh, the fix is that in software, you have to stop programs from being able to do this, which means now the processor's ability to break things up into these small units and run them out of order now it can't do that anymore. Uh, not that it can't do it at all, but it can't do it as quickly. And so you take a performance hit. Yeah. Uh, they, they're saying 
different people are saying different things right now, but it ranges from a 5% to a 30% performance hit. 30% is more than likely a worst-case scenario uh, sensationalized number. Uh, it'll probably be in the 5 to 10% range, though. So when you patch your system to make it more secure, your, your processing power is effectively going to be reduced by 5%. On a database system or critical infrastructure, that's a big hit. And, and that's going to impact people. Those CPUs aren't going to be as powerful as they used to be. In the future, Intel and AMD and the other guys, they'll be able to fix this in the hardware. So the patch won't be necessary anymore. We'll return to normal numbers. But that means you got to buy new CPUs, right? Which most people aren't going to do for three years or whatever your, your refresh cycle is. And then you've got different software that has to be created. So you've got a version that runs whether you're on, on, on an affected machine or not. Um, so that, that, that's going to be interesting. And it, it uh, you know, it, it sounds like a small number, even 5%, but you extrapolate that across, a um, you know, an entire server farm and, uh, and that, that could get pretty serious. So is there anything else we need to, uh, to understand with, with this before we move on? Uh, you know, it, this one's going to be around a while and I, yeah. I do liken it back to the, the Intel math bug in the 1990s that, People talked about it for years, and software had to be patched for it for a long time. Uh, you know, it was really after the year 2000 that people stopped patching for that, and it, it just takes a long time for a bug like this to work its way out. For the regular end user, this is probably not that significant, that if an attacker is in your system, you know, they've managed to infect your system already— there are many other exploits that could be used to get the same data. So this is by and large, going to be an enterprise-type attack. Uh, on the enterprise space, though, this definitely needs to be patched and taken care of, especially on systems that handle sensitive and secure data. Really, really important. Sounds good. Well, uh, while we're talking cloud, uh, that's a good uh, transition point. We actually uh, have another article that we want to talk about related uh, to the cloud. So uh, this jumps us over to VentureBeat. But uh, Microsoft is acquiring a hybrid, storage, a hybrid cloud storage company called Avere Systems. And um, well, first of all, can you kind of explain what, what a hybrid cloud situation is? Yeah, you know, uh, hybrid clouds are kind of turning into our buzzword of 2018. In, in, in 20, was it 2016, it was just cloud. You got to go to the cloud. We don't know what that is, but you've got to be in the cloud. Uh, and as that's progressed, now people are talking about these hybrid clouds a lot more. And that's where your resources, your servers, your storage, they aren't just in one cloud provider. They're either spread across more than one cloud provider or they're part on one cloud provider and part local in your own data center. So you're in between. Well, one of the challenges with doing that, spreading your data, is having the same data in two locations at the same time. If I have a database and I want the database to be in Microsoft Azure and Google Compute Engine, right? Well, if I have users connecting to either one, I need those databases to be identical. If I have a website that is partly stored in Azure or in uh, AWS and partly stored in my own on-premises web servers, I need the, those to be in lockstep so that when somebody comes along and accesses the resources, they get the same copy, whether they come to one cloud or another. That's really hard to do. And companies like Avere, they've come up with solutions that help with that to replicate and synchronize data and make sure that you can fail over, that if one cloud drops, that you seamlessly flip over to the other one and that you can manage and control that. Controlling that data is really challenging. And if you lose the data, it, it can be really, really bad. So software like this is 
really gaining traction. Um, we've seen this trend of software-defined networking, SDN, while well, now we're seeing software-defined storage following alongside of that. We don't want to be tied to one SAN or one data vault in Azure or whatever. We want to be able to spread it out and know that it's the same everywhere, so it doesn't matter which one I connect to. If one fails, I just jump over to the other, and I'm back in business. So that, that's what Avir does. So it's basically like having an off-site backup, but you're using it at the same time that you're using what you have internally then. Um, wh what I thought was especially interesting about this purchase for uh, for Microsoft, and, and I don't think it's finalized yet, the terms haven't been released, but um, Avir Systems has AWS and Google's cloud platform listed as its cloud partners, and actually not Azure, so uh, it's kind of a, a, a little cut there. I mean, we're going to see a lot of that, I think, over this next year of, of uh, you know, the, the acquisitions taking place and... and um, fighting for market share. We talked a lot at the end of the year um, after the AWS conference about different partnerships that they were announcing. So uh, we're starting to see uh, maybe Microsoft hitting back a little bit uh, with this one. So I thought it was an interesting interesting article to uh, to touch on there. And, and there have been a few instances of this. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Quick Labs. Uh, Quick Labs had created this like virtual lab environment for uh, AWS. And if you wanted to learn about how to use AWS, you could go to Quick Labs, you could buy some credits, and they had these hands-on labs. It would actually spin up an AWS environment, and you could go through and, and learn and do some neat stuff. Um, they were obviously partnered very, very tight with Amazon, and, and most people, myself included, just assumed that Amazon was going to acquire them one day. Um, but Amazon didn't, and Google acquired them. Now, to my knowledge, Quick Labs hadn't made any Google Labs at that point, but Google said, wow, that's a really great idea. We'd love to do it, too. You're working with AWS right now, but if we can take that away from a, a competitor, let's do it. And, and so I think that's really going to get aggressive. These companies, they have a lot of uh, extra cash on hand. Uh, you know, Some of them, I think Azure is one of the ones that's running a little closer to the, the fine line of profitability. But um, ones like AWS, they actually are generating a, a ton of revenue. And being able to acquire companies like this just makes them makes them that much more competitive. Yeah, well, Microsoft has enough money in the bank that they can move a little bit of that over to the uh, the Azure group, I think. But um, All right, so uh, switching gears now to the mobile side. Well, first of all, I should say the the Christmas gift I got myself. Uh-oh. Oh, yeah. Hold on. Black, uh, new BlackBerry? The new BlackBerry. <laughs> the, uh, this is the uh, this is the iPhone iPhone 10. Because I because Don <laughs> talked about how much he loved facial recognition, um, you know, near the end of last year. So I thought I'd... Go ahead and, and try this out. So, do you want to? I want to see if it recognizes you. Oh yeah, well, I don't yeah, have a so, beard. It's not even. Well, it, it. According to you, this should just recognize anything with two eyes. And I'm a, just and saying, a mouth. if you take that so. phone to Amish country, you're in trouble. Uh, and no, nope. I, I did see the lock shake. So lock shook. Yep. Nope. And me. But I bet if I glued on a I'm fake in. red beard. Well, we will uh, have to test that in a later episode. But unfortunately, I got this through Verizon. And it looks like uh, AT&T <laughs> is going to be the first one, or they say they are, to to roll out um, 5G. So just when I started to figure out what 4G or, or LTE <laughs> meant compared to 3G, and I don't know about you, but my guess is 6G is next. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, you should probably just wait for it. It's just yeah. like like <laughs> Gillette with, with razor blades. Like, let's just skip over the fifth and go go right to number six or seven. Do you remember the SNL skit for that? Yeah. They're like, and it's got the 11th blade. We call it the phantom blade. <laughs> you can't even see it. <laughs> so uh, this was an article that we found. It was on uh, MSN. I think it actually came from Bloomberg. Um, 
And it the, the headline reads, AT&T plans to offer mobile 5G wireless phone service this year, right? Um, that sounds pretty impressive, Must right? be soon. Uh, if a lot of people are just getting to 4G, 5G is obviously going to be better. We definitely want to get to it. Um, the reason I wanted to talk about this article today was not so much the announcement, because the announcement is um, what I would classify as BS, uh, but it, it's this... A concept of what people think of as 5G, right? So the the G terms, if you're not familiar with those, it's just generation, right? That first generation cellular communications and data were really, really basic and could could barely barely carry any data. In fact, I don't remember. I think 1G might not have been able to carry data uh, like uh, text data at all. Yeah. But by the time you got to 2G and 3G and Edge, uh, these things usually had more than one name. Uh, by the time you get to the second and third generations, now you were carrying voice and data. But there were always challenges, like it was slow, or uh, Verizon had a series of commercials about how, like, wait, you can't talk and browse the web at the same time? And those were limitations of how uh, some of the different data technologies work over wireless networks. Well, with 4G, we saw really fast access, that you could talk and, and move data at the same time, and AT&T's implementation that was called LTE. So 4G networks are, are pretty common. They're spread all over the place. And so a lot of people are asking about 5G. When's the fifth generation coming? And I think each cell phone provider in the United States so far has said they were going to lead this 5G revolution. Um, and there's two challenges here, right? So one, cell phone advancements normally come out of Europe, not the U.S., because the U.S. doesn't have a regulated system for this. Providers can put up whatever kind of antenna they want. But in Europe, they all use the same antennas. And then that way they can advance and move into new technologies much, much more quickly, and everybody's phone is able to support that. You can buy SIM cards and change them out. The, the European system is significantly better than ours. Here in the U.S., the providers can do whatever they want. And one of those things is they can call themselves 5G or 6G, 10G, and nobody can say anything because there is no official 5G yet. When there is an official 5G, then there'll be rules over who can say they're doing what. But as it stands, anybody can call anything they want 5G. And AT&T is kind of doing that, right? Uh, so their 4G LTE is actually capable of going up to 1.2 gigabits per second. That's pretty fast. You know, gig transmissions over wireless. What they're advertising as 5G is really just gigabit LTE. That's all it is. And so they're using 5G as a brand, you know, just some kind of, hey, oh, the other providers don't have 5G. They can't do this. But the other providers are kind of doing it as well. And you're going to end up with multiple providers saying they have 5G when there is no 5G. 5G doesn't exist. They're just saying they have it. It's like um, if I released a movie and said it was in 5D, Ooh. you'd think, well, 3D is pretty good. Yeah. I don't even know what 4D is, but 5D, that's the best. Well, there's no set of rules that define what 5D is. Maybe it's got smell or something. It smells like a stinky movie theater. That's the fifth dimension. So, uh, uh, you know, that that's kind of how this stuff is. Uh, but as you read about it throughout the year, know that what AT&T is promoting as 5G is not really 5G. There is no standard. And that it is just gigabit LTE. Now, that's the kind of negative cynical side. On a positive side, when you can have gigabit cellular network, that's that's better than most people's broadband connections here in the US. So imagine, you know, moving to a, a new house or a new apartment 
And you don't have to worry about running cables. You don't have to worry about switches or routers. You just have a cellular modem in each of your devices. And you can get onto the internet. You can walk out in the yard and it works fine. You can hop in your car and drive to work all in the same connection because it's being thrown out over the cell towers. That, I think, is the future of, of wireless. And when that comes about, we'll see wired connections start to go away, except for in data centers, right? Because the, the client connectivity, we're not usually worried about high speed or, or even speeds beyond a gigabit because we're just jumping on the internet where a lot of times our connections are much slower than that anyway. So by the way, that my, my parents' favorite record that they have at their house is the fifth dimension yeah. um, right now, the, the age of Aquarius with the sunshine. I, I, I thought you were going to work in a Kenny G reference, uh, Ooh, but like uh, you, know, you started talking about your parents' albums. But yeah. Age of Aquarius, well, you that... brought up five D or five five D, <laughs> yeah, five D. Yeah, I think uh, if I'm Verizon, though, I'm just going to go ahead and and jump right to to eight G and just yeah. you know say it's twice as good. Well, I didn't want to brag, but like last week, I released the twelve G standard. Wow, and uh, it's amazing. It is amazing. The Don standard. <laughs> it's within one percent of the other network. It's on Metro PCS. Oh, very nice. yeah. Cricket, cricket, cricket. is uh, going to put this out. Uh, well, I will say, um, you know, you, you mentioned they're just calling it what they want and and claiming mm -hmm. it. Well, AT and T stock rose one percent today, um, so that's a uh, a nice little bump. Uh, considering, let's see, it uh, dropped eight point six percent last year. So. Yeah, there was a there was an article yeah. earlier, uh, I think like two or three weeks ago, from Bloomberg as well, where they were talking about how all these providers are, are going to upgrade to 5G, this non-existent thing, and how in order to upgrade their antennas to do it, it's going to have a cost of like $200 billion a year to do the upgrade. But that the benefit is so little that it's not really worth it. Like there were specific benefits to go from each generation up until now. Now, if it's just a speed increase, that's not enough. It's got to bring something else along with it. And that's why we don't have a 5G standard. The, the standards bodies that, that manage this stuff, they've said that uh, what they want 5G to be is 20 gigabit with one millisecond latency. That's their target. And so what AT&T is promoting as, as just you know gigabit with who knows what latency that's not what the standards bodies want, and that's why there's not a standard. So know that when we have real 5G, it should be closer to 20 gigabit with one millisecond of latency, uh, and that's going to take some serious upgrading and some serious hardware that just isn't invented yet. All right, then switching gears to real actual news then. <laughs> um, this one's on, on Business Wire, but uh, the Ethernet Alliance hails the arrival of uh, 200 gig and 400 gig Ethernet uh, with the approval of IEEE 802.3BS, which could be the worst uh, name there, but you know a lot of the other letters were taken, so let's go with 802.3BS. Uh, I love it. I think it's great. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we uh, we covered an article uh, back in December about um, that 12 and a half terabit backplane that was available on some switches and how it was uh, capable of handling these 200 and 400 gigabit connections. But the 200 and 400 gigabit connections weren't standardized yet. So now we can say as of January 4th, 2008, uh, the press release is out there on Business Wire that the, the Ethernet Alliance has standardized it. So there's an IEEE standard now, 802.3BS, and it's got a trademark TM symbol, so all yeah. the other BS standards go away. Uh, this one uh, is actually not BS, like 5G. Uh, this one is really impressive that... 
200 and 400 gigabit connections uh, over Ethernet are really impressive. Now, just like any other speed increase like this, in the beginning, it's going to be fiber only, right? So uh, you'll see it running over fiber optic cable and really getting some impressive speeds there. And then over time, copper may or may not catch up to it, right? With fiber, we're typically utilizing about 10% of what its overall capacity is. But with Ethernet, we're far beyond that. So whether or not they can drive it to these speeds over any amount of distances is, is going to yet to be seen. Um, the Ethernet distances are getting shorter and shorter and shorter when run over copper media. So, uh, you know, this might end up being one of those where, hey, if you have a three-foot cable or one-meter cable, then uh, then you can do this 200 gigabit, but if it's any longer, you can't. So we'll see where that goes. But the standard is is real. It is 802.3BS, which is awesome, and uh, and it's, it's done and it's out there, so we're going to start seeing that technology. People have been talking about this since March of last year because that's when the the demos were done of the hardware where people had actually created hardware that could do this. Uh, so it took took nine months to get it standardized. But now that it's standardized, you'll start seeing equipment being manufactured and sold. Some is already out there on the market. First of all, I want to say I'm embarrassed for calling this I E E E and not I Triple E. I I realized that right when you said it that uh, I'm not that smart. Um, second of all, I'm, I'm curious. Does, does the 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 BS actually stand for something? Like when when you're 802.11G, does it? Oh no, no. It's just yeah. Cause they'll start with like 802.3A. They gotta pick anything. B, then. C. Well, and then they get through the the alphabet. They get to Z. Yeah. And they start over with AA, okay. AB, and so I, I would have put out one more iteration. That's all. Uh, that's what I would have done. Uh, that's, that's true. Go, that's true. I guess they could have done that. Yeah. Uh, I, I, it's just like marketing people aren't involved. The the Jeep I have is the Jeep JK, which you know, internet speak, it's a joke, it's, uh, no one thinks it's yeah. true. <laughs> well, it, the, the IEEE and, and most of the standards bodies, they actually do have a, a sense of humor. There's a lot of IEEE standards that are out there, like, um, I know there's one, it's uh, uh, IP over carrier pigeon, which I always forget the RFC number for that one, uh, where, you know, they're, they're, they're real, yeah. like somebody went through the trouble to standardize it. So I could see them looking at 802.3BS and thinking, we're going to standardize that. We're going to get everybody running the standard. It'd be kind of cool to see. But, uh, you know, that's that's where it's at now. Uh, yeah, it's just how the, the letters are incremented, and eventually it'll get to three letters, and then you can have some real fun ones. Yeah, that'll I already think there. of a few. Yeah. Well, speaking of, uh, of BS, um, Uber, uh, there's a uh, basically a malware posing as Uber, so BS Uber, Uh on Android uh, that is able to steal passwords. So that's something to look out for right now. Um, Don, have you seen anything about this uh, this fake app out there? Yeah, so the, the, the article you're referencing came from IB Times, or International Business Times, and uh, and they're highlighting this one particular app. The, the article was a, a little bit light on how people are, are, are getting this, right? And, and so I want to talk about that a bit. Um, imposter software like this makes it into the Android App Store uh, quite a bit, right? Um, with the Apple App Store, iOS App Store, uh, Apple requires a review process. When you push an application in, an actual human being that Apple employs reviews your application. And if it's an imposter app, it just gets rejected. It doesn't make it into the store. People could still smuggle malware in there, but a true imposter app, that's not going to make it through. That's the that's the positive side of Apple's walled garden. There's a number of negative sides. But we won't get into that now. On the Android side, though, it's different. Google's a lot more allowing. They have an automated scanner that just runs to check and see if you have malware in your app. And if you do, it blocks it. But otherwise, it lets it into the App Store. And then if people report it as an imposter, then they take it down again, right? And they can take it down and even uninstall it from your phone automatically. But in this case, 
they call the app malware, but technically um, it's only malware in the loosest sense of the term. It doesn't have a virus in it. It doesn't have uh, you know some kind of like infection vector. You you install this app thinking that it's the Uber app, and instead of presenting you with Uber's login page, they present you with their own login page, and you put in your Uber credentials, and they don't work. And that's that, or they forward them, you know, basically proxy them over to Uber. So it does work. You think it's working, but they've now captured your data. So it's definitely malicious and it's software, so we can call it malware. But it's not like it's got uh, some kind of worm or exploit that it's using. It's just tricking you visually, right? Now, this will get reported. Google will remove it if it's in the Google App Store. More often than not, though, these aren't in the Google App Store. A lot of people have Android devices that are not attached to the Android App Store. Google releases the Android OS as open source, right? Uh, It's called the, um, uh, shoot, what is it? The AOPC? I forget. AOSP. That's it. The Android Open Software Platform, I think is what it stands for. Um, uh, AOSP. And AOSP is the open source version of Android minus the Google Apps framework, which means no Gmail, no uh, uh, what is it? Duo, Allo, no Google Play Store. So if you want to install apps, you've got to get a third-party app store. And in the U.S., this isn't very popular. Even in Europe, it's not very popular. But in China, it is. It's incredibly popular. In, in other countries where they're not necessarily trusting of an American company, which you certainly shouldn't be these days, uh, <laughs> but if you're not trusting of an American company, you might install a third-party app store to get your apps. Uh, here in the U.S., we have Amazon, the Amazon App Store. You can actually get your Android apps from them if you want. Now you're trusting them to properly vet these applications, and a lot of them don't. A lot of them even have stolen software on there. So now if you install this Uber app from a third-party marketplace, you don't know if it's a legitimate one. You put in your credentials, and you could be you could be sending your credentials to some third party and not even know it. And that's a big reason why you shouldn't use third-party app stores that aren't properly vetted, that aren't proven to be testing and, and securing their systems. I hear a lot of times where there'll be an app that's no longer in the app store. And so people say, oh, well, you know, I just I went to this APK mirror site or IPA mirror site, and I just downloaded it from there and installed it. I could sideload it and get it, right? Well, all right, you just sideloaded it. Where did you get it from? Do do you trust them? Do you know who made that? Do you know that it's the same as the version that was distributed in the store? Usually you don't, and that means it may be infected. Uh, so we've always got to be careful when we install software from a third party. Yeah, and we actually did a podcast last year where we um, we had an interview where we talked about how much different information um, Uber is. <laughs> oh, is that is that the A team? Uh, you know, actually, that is. No, that's not the A team. That's. That is Magnum Magnum PI. Magnum PI. That's right. So now we're going to have to pay licensing. So I've, I've blown it. I think we were short enough in that one that we we're not going to have to pay the licensing. How many but notes did I play? With the with the iPhone XX, I can just push this little button down. <laughs> oh, and, if only I had uh, an iPhone. And shut all that off. But uh, anyway, we learned it, that with... Uh, uh, with the Uber app, it's already sending your data a lot of different places. It's got to process credit cards. Yeah, it's, it's got to yeah. you know authenticate and do all these things. So, uh, you're right that that wouldn't necessarily get picked up by uh, by Google or or Amazon or or any of these other providers as something that's malicious. If it's especially if it's passing that data through, but once they have that password from you, I mean, a lot of people have their credit card stored in Uber. 
I mean, obviously, it's it's got the information about where you are at that point in yeah. time. So there's a lot of different uh, things that they can do with, with something like that. I mean, the easiest is just take your credit card information and, and start spending it, but definitely something to, to be be wary of. Well, you know, let, let, let's tie this back to my phone ringing, right? Um, yeah, so yeah, act like that. that in, uh, it's like purpose. on purpose. Yeah. My, uh, uh, so I, I run Android, and I use a program called Tasker that I, I love. I love Tasker. You can tell it to do all sorts of crazy things that Apple won't let you do. So, for example, mine is set up so that when I walk in the building, it'll see the wireless network here and automatically mute my phone so that I don't have to worry about it. Now, I don't know what happened. My phone is not muted right now. <laughs> well, it is now, but it wasn't a second ago. <laughs> um, but that app has more permissions than what a normal app would have. It can, it can mute my phone. It can uh, delete voicemail. It can do all sorts of crazy things because I've allowed it. And if I have root access, it can do even more. Well, if you have root access... Think of what a malicious program could do. Now, I haven't rooted my phone. The things that, that Tasker does, I've, I've given it permission to. Well, you don't even have to root. If you've given it permission to access, um, you know, send and receive text messages, it can do all sorts of crazy things. It could intercept all of your text messages and relay them to some other server. That's the risk that we have when we start giving permissions to applications. We've got to pay attention to that. We've got to make sure that we trust where the applications come from and that we don't grant them permissions that they shouldn't have in the first place. That's all uh, a big part of it. With an app like this, the, the Uber app, that's impersonating, it's that much more challenging. Because if the Uber app tells me, hey, I need access to your GPS and I need access to the network, that makes sense to me. But you got to have my GPS to get me a driver in the area and you got to have the network so you can reach out to Uber headquarters and tell them to just send a car. Well, if it's a malicious app, they want internet access so they can access their own servers. It doesn't tell us what server they're reaching out to. And so that's where there's several companies now that have specialized in actually intercepting that traffic to see who they're talking to, where that information is going. And, uh, and there's programs out there like uh, Fiddler, uh, which is from a company, I think it's Telerik, and, uh, and it'll let you actually see the traffic between these apps and the servers, and you can get an idea of, of what kind of communications they're doing. I, I don't know if I believe any of that because I don't trust anyone that has a physical keyboard on their phone, <laughs> and you kind of do. Uh, what what is that by the way? What what does that do? Uh, you know, so I have a it's a Galaxy S8, okay, which uh, it doesn't have a keyboard, but I've got my this is fancy. I've got my Snap on keyboard that I snap on, and and now it looks like a BlackBerry, which I love having that keyboard. But I hate it when people think I have a BlackBerry, so I have to keep it snapped on uh, backwards most of the time. So you made fun of me think for so. having a BlackBerry. Yeah. Just, just as a way to deflect from yeah, it. Yeah, it's like a passive-aggressive, yeah. Um, yeah. What, what is that called? There's a syndrome named after that. I'm sure uh, I have anyhow. it, but anyway. <laughs> well, covered a lot of good stuff there. Um, got a lot of things to go and make sure you've, you've patched. Uh, hopefully you paused this podcast back 30 minutes ago and, and patched everything. Uh, otherwise, that was more than enough time for everything to be stolen off of your machine. So Absolutely. Uh, hopefully you, you took that time and uh, and make sure you've got the right Uber app running. And, uh, yeah, just check where your, your stuff is in the cloud and that they've got those those correct patches too. But um, the first patches of the new year, week one, and we're already, already patching stuff. So uh, thanks, everybody, for joining us today. If you liked what you heard, please go ahead and subscribe, share, uh, comment, like, uh, do all those things. Helps us move up in the rankings in the uh, – uh, in the podcast uh, listings. Uh, you can follow us on iTunes, Stitcher, uh, TuneIn, uh, Google, all those great places. And now i got to check with all these other uh, an- Android-based uh, podcast engines and see what's out there. But uh, any closing yeah. thoughts there, Don? Uh, you know, uh, we got 
let me talk a little bit about how we find these articles. You know, most of the stuff are things that we've read during the week that we think you guys would find interesting. But if you see a topic out there in the news that you want to hear a little more about, you want us to talk about or, or maybe go a little deeper in, reach out to us and let us know. Shoot us an email. Uh, I would, we actually have podcast at itpro.tv. You can shoot an email to and, uh, and let us know the topics that you've heard about and you want to hear. We, we could certainly talk about it and cover it. Uh, otherwise, we just keep picking what we think is important and there is a lot more out there in the world. So definitely reach out to us. We love to hear from you guys out there in TV slash Radio Land. Yep. And we'll look forward to hearing from you, and we'll look forward to talking to you guys next time. 